John chapter 3, and this is the second lesson in our series, You Must Be Born Again, and uh, we're, we're just talking about this and taking our text from John 3. We're going to read just two verses. We're going to start at verse 16. I think everybody knows that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave. Aren't you glad for that? He gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then back to verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Amen. Christianity, as, as we know it today, has become nearly a meaningless term, unfortunately. Matter of fact, 75% of Americans consider themselves Christians. 75%. There was one survey that was done in 2019 that says only 23% of Americans attend church regularly. And by regularly, it means every week, at least once a week. And 53% of Americans seldom ever attend church at all, if at all. But 75% consider themselves Christians. That tells you a lot about the mindset of the world today. That a lot of people consider themselves to be pretty good. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian person. And so clearly the term Christianity has been reduced to merely a title than a powerful experience with God. Furthermore, in the world today, there are over 30,000 denominations within Christianity. That is, organizations and groups and branches, etc. throughout the world, there are over 30,000. And so those are just the ones that were, that were able to be documented there are many different organizational types, organizational structures, different beliefs and different doctrines in many of them, in all of them. But I like what Brother Stone King said. He kind of boiled it down to three basic types of Christianity. The first type is, of course, Catholic or Catholic Christianity. And that's basically, you know, baptism plus works equals salvation. If you were to walk in any church in this city today, you will be walking into one of these three types of churches. And what separates these three types is what you need to do in order to be saved. Because as different as they all are, there's really only three types. And in so in that respect, they're pretty much the same or close to the same. So the first type would be Catholic Christianity that says baptism. Because the Catholic Church, at least they used to, I assume they still do, believe that baptism was for the remission of sins. If they, they will baptize an infant, you're not required necessarily to have faith. Then there's Protestant Christianity, which is Christianity that came out of the Reformation. They were protesting uh, uh, the church in those days. And that's basically, their plan is confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. But then there's a third type of Christianity, which we know as apostolic Christianity. And that is Christianity that did not come from the Reformation. We did not come from seven ecumenical councils throughout church history, but we came out of an upper room. We came from that group. It started off pretty wild. They thought that they were drunk. Now when they heard this, Peter preached to them the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 37 of Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart 
and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You know this verse. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The question was, after they were convinced that they were a sinner and that they needed to be saved, the question was, what shall we do to be saved? The answer was Acts 2.38. If the question has not changed, then neither has the answer. It never will change. No matter what millennial or so-called dispensation that there lies ahead, until the Lord comes, that is the plan that God has to save men. That's how we respond to the gospel. Now, Acts 2.38 in and of itself is not the gospel, but the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. Acts 2.38 is how we apply that or get that work into our lives. So there, there's no ecumenical council, there's no theological book, there's no evangelical board or movement that can ever change either the question or the answer. Now they've tried to change the answer many times, but the formula never works. I mean, Catholicism will not save you, denominal Christianity will not save you, even Pentecostalism will not save you. You need an encounter with the living God. That changes you. The kind of encounter like they had in an upper room. So the question is, why? Why do we need to, to do that for? Well, the answer is a lot more complicated than because God said so. Although that's true also. But that was the only reason he said, you ever said that to your kids? What do I got to do this for? And, you know, you just don't want to argue with them, especially when they're teenagers. Because I said so. That ends it. But, 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 I don't care. Because I said so. Zip it. I said so. That's it. See, that's free parenting advice right there. If you got teenagers. And if you don't got teenagers, then write it down in your Bible because those are some good words to know. Because <laughs> they always got an argument. <laughs> Amen. Help him, Lord. <laughs> but practically speaking, practically speaking, you can't live for God without the gospel. And it's saving power. Matter of fact, it's impossible. You can be good, for sure. And there's a lot of good people in the world. As I said, 75% of America considers themselves Christians. Now, not every one of those 75% is a murderer or a drunkard or a drug addict or a child molester or a wife beater or an adulterer. There are some good people out there that have given their lives over to help other people. There are some people, you know... Uh, that are doctors, and, and they give their lives to help people. And they don't just live lavishly off the money that they make, but they give it away to the poor, and they help others that are less fortunate. There are good people. There are good people that the world, when they pass and the eulogy is read at their funeral, the world applauds them because of the good works that they do. But here's the problem. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and come short. Of the glory of God. Now, some people have fallen much shorter than others. But we've all fallen short. Remember, we learned last week the word glory here means the approval of God. It's translated as that many times in Scripture. It doesn't just mean the holiness or the righteousness of God in this context. But it means those that God approves of. We've fallen short of God's approval. Because in yourself, you cannot please God. Romans 8 and 8 says, so that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You've got to be out of Adam, and you've got to be born in, as a new creature in Christ. Generations, uh, uh, Genesis 5 talks about these are the generations of Adam, and then it goes and talks about his generation and those that were in Adam. Then when you get to Noah, and it says that Lamech said in Genesis 6, whenever Noah was born, uh, you know, Lamech said of him, we're going to name him Noah because he's going to give us rest from the toil that was on the earth. Because remember, they were kicked out of the garden and they were supposed to toil from the sweat of their brow. So the word Noah means rest. In the Hebrew, it means rest. They thought that Noah was going to be some prophesied redeemer that would come and redeem them back and give them rest from all their toil. But Noah gave them a different type of rest. And the rest that he gave them was from the wickedness that was in that generation. And that's why Genesis 6 really goes out of its way to talk about how wicked that generation was and how the sons of God went into the daughters of men and the imaginations of man's heart was only on evil continually. And God said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I'm going to wipe everybody out, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because there was the rest. And they, they went through the ark and the flood washed away. The, that wicked generation, and they entered into a rest. You've seen a type of this here. We have a rest. That rest is Christ. That just as there is a generation that is in Adam, Ephesians 3 says, For this cause, about 14, 15, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That just as in the flesh we are in Adam, there is another generation that is in Christ. You've got to be born all over again into that generation. You can't live good enough to get into that generation. It's a physical impossibility. You've got to be born into it. So repentance is really the first word of the gospel. Repentance has fruits from Matthew chapter 3. And verse 7 says this, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Can you imagine if dignitaries were, were in our church today and God gave you a message like that? Oh, generation of vipers, who's warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able to raise up of these stones, children of Abraham. John the Baptist came preaching to the most religious people of his day. And, he, and his message, according to this passage, was twofold. First of all, don't think that your family lineage is going to save you. Don't think that because you're a son of David or you're a child of Abraham. Matter of fact, that's why you need to be saved to begin with. Because you're in Adam. You're, you're in Abraham. Whenever you read from the book of Luke, his genealogy begins with Adam. But Matthew's genealogy of Jesus begins with Abraham. Because remember, there's, there's a natural seed that comes through Adam, and then there's a seed that is born by faith. Abraham had faith in the gospel. Whenever he was up there on Mount Moriah, God said, kill your son, and his knife was, was over his head. Hebrews 11 said, as he was about to slay his son, God, God told him, stop. You know that story, Genesis 22. But what you may not know is this, is that Abraham had so much faith in God that he believed that if if he were to kill Isaac, that God was going to raise him from the dead. And Hebrews 11 says that by believing that, then Abraham believed in the gospel. The Bible calls it in a figure. Or in other words, he believed in the Old Testament foreshadowing. 
of what would happen when Messiah would come. And by doing so, God imputed or counted him as righteous in that day. And that's why Matthew 1's gospel begins with Abraham, because Luke is showing, look, you know, there's a generation of Adam, but there's another generation that begins by faith. And we got to be in that generation. We've got to be of the faith of Abraham, the father of the faithful. So, so, so John's message was, first of all, don't think that your family lineage is going to save you because that's why you need to be saved to begin with. Secondly, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. Repentance has fruit. Faith comes first, then saving faith will produce repentance, and repentance will always have fruits associated with it. Now, the fruits of repentance is turning your heart towards God and away from sin. It just means to turn around. As a matter of fact, it really never had necessarily a connotation of, you know, confess all your sins that you did. It just means confess you're a sinner, ask the Lord for forgiveness, and get baptized. It's kind of like one step. Repent and get baptized. Turn your hearts toward God. It was a renunciation of sin and a pleading to God for help. And it leads naturally to baptism. Saving faith produces repentance. Repentance will lead you to cry out to God for forgiveness. And God has provided a way to have your sins washed away. As Ananias told Paul, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's how the New Testament associated calling on the name of the Lord. They did it by associating it with water baptism. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10 talks about that, and that is unequivocally connected with water baptism. They were calling on the name of the Lord in the, in the waters of baptism. So in the context of the gospel, Baptism is the fruit of repentance. Now, repentance has other fruits. For example, if I'm a murderer and I repent of that, obviously I need to stop my murdering and go to the police, confess what I've done. If, if I'm an adulterator, I need to confess what I've done to God first, probably to my wife second. Good idea. Repentance has fruits. But in the context of the gospel, okay, the fruit of repentance is baptism. Okay, so in the context of the gospel, repentance is baptism. The context of John's words in Matthew 3 was John telling the Pharisees they too needed to be baptized. Now this is important because if you were a Jewish convert, you had to go through what they called passing through the waters of mikvah. Mikvah just meant washing. And you know, so the Gentiles were the ones that were baptized. That's really where the, you know, the... The, you know, the idea of baptism probably came from in the New Testament was the Gentiles, if they were become a proselyte or a convert to Judaism, they had to be baptized or washed with water. And there, and, and there, was, you know, there, was, there were certain rituals that they had to go through. That was the most important one. So for John to tell the Pharisees, you need to get baptized. Don't think that we're a, a father, this is our father, and that was our father. Don't think that because you're a Jew, you need to get baptized like the Gentiles do. They didn't like that because they thought we're on the mountaintop and we need to get closer to God. We are closer to God than the rest of us. But John came to make the valleys exalted and to the mountains made low. The playing field was even and nobody was closer to God because the law pronounced everybody guilty. We've all done it. So, so that was the heart of the gospel and that was the stone that made them to stumble. Amen. So the Pharisees did not like that. They thought, we don't need to be baptized. We don't need a Savior. You need a Savior. We don't need to get, we don't, do you know I fast this much a day and, and I pray all this time? But remember, Jesus said, which one of these two came out justified? The Pharisee or the publican? 
but oh, is the one that smote his breast and said, God, I need a Savior. God, I need mercy today. And you know what? You are never closer to mercy than when you realize your greatest need for it. Amen. So pride kept them out of the kingdom of God. Naaman didn't want to get baptized either, did he? I don't want to get down in this muddy Jordan River, but you know what? Do you really like living with leprosy? Or do you just want to do what the prophet said? That's what one of his servants said. If they had asked you to do some great thing, you surely would have done it. So just, you know, it's just muddy Jordan River. You can change it when we get back home. Just do it for God's sake. Seven times. Not once. Seven. In that old, stinky, muddy Jordan River. <laughs> when I got baptized years ago, they didn't have warm baptistries. They even wrote a song about it. The water was cold, but it warmed my soul. <laughs> when I was 10, it didn't feel very warm. My soul didn't feel warm. My soul was cold. <laughs> it was cold tap water. And my grandmother tells me how she got baptized in a creek. My great-grandmother got baptized in a creek. Not a warm place to get baptized. And there's never a convenient place necessarily. But that was, that was what God required. So, right, so just as, just as bat, repentance has fruit, righteousness also has fruit. 2 Corinthians 9 and 10 says, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your own seed, increase the fruits of righteousness. Philippians 1 and 10 also says, That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. So just as repentance has fruits of righteousness, also has fruits. Now, some people are going to say, well, I fed the poor. I've given money away to the less fortunate. I've visited sick and the homeless, and that's righteousness, so I must be righteous. And those are all good things, but the difference is which came first, the works or the righteousness? Because if the works came first before there was a point in time at which God declared you righteous, not you declared you righteous, but God declared you righteous, then your works, although they are good and you are helping the community and you're doing a lot of good things from God's perspective, they don't get you any closer to him. Because if that were the case, then why would Jesus ever need to die on the cross? Pointless. If we can just do good deeds all day long. Um, so righteousness is not a work or a deed. It is a status that God decrees upon us. We are justified by faith. It's he, 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 it becomes the Lord. Becomes my, he's the Lord, my righteousness. The Lord himself is my righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's his righteousness. And the fruits, the works that we do after we're saved are because we have been changed. I don't want to go to the places I used to go to. I don't want to listen to what I used to. It's not just a matter of gritting my teeth and clenching my fish and trying real hard to do right. But it's a, a saving experience that God had, that God has for all of us, where he changes our hearts. And you don't want to do those things anymore. You don't want to look at that. You don't want to go to those places. You don't want to dress like that anymore. Because there's been an inward change. And when you were in Adam, those things were normal. But once you're in Christ, we want to do good. Because it's pleasing into his sight. Once you're washed, then you're free from the sins that once enslaved you. And then, righteous, and then righteousness begins to bear fruit. 
Now, we are not doing good to be righteous. We're doing good because we have already been made righteous. So right standing with God is not in man. It is not in himself. It is not in me, and it is not in you. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, because he was not in Adam. There's power in the new birth experience. Confession alone will never do it. Your repentance must have fruits. Quickly, let's go to Romans 10 and verse 6. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this way. Say not in your heart, who shall ascend in heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what says it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. When he says, but what saith it, he's, re- he's referencing the verses from Deuteronomy that quote this exact passage. Moses, near the end of his life, is assuring Israel that his commandments are not too far out there. That they're not too difficult. They're not too hard. But it's right here in front of you. You can do this. It's not, it's not something that is impossible that God's required of you. So from Deuteronomy 30, it says this, For this commandment which I command you this day, it is not hidden from you, neither is it afar off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it into us, that we should hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh thee in your mouth and your heart that you may do it. So he was saying, Look, The covenant you are about ready to enter into as you enter the land of Canaan requires you to keep the commandments of God. But what God has required of you is not too hard. It's not way up there in heaven. we got to reach real high for it. we got to build us a tower who top may reach into heaven. It's not way down there like we got to get somebody raised up from the dead. It's not like that. He said it's right here. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Confess it. Believe it. And do it. That's what he's talking about. Now, a lot of people quote Romans 10, and they're talking about, oh, that's God's plan of salvation. That, is a, that leads to plan. He said, you will be saved if you do this. But he, he also said that you may do it. Amen. And so whenever you could not reach for salvation, salvation reached for us. Man tried from the dawn of time, from the time of the fall, to attain to God's right standing. And at the end of the day, God spent thousands of years through the law of Moses teaching man that you need a Savior. To convince him that when Messiah would come, that man would be ripe and ready for the plan. That was the reason why John the Baptist came preaching. He, he was the summation of the, of the entire law and prophets. That was the whole message was repent. You need a Savior. There's a man that's going to come. And, and I'm not even worthy to, to, you know, to, uh, to loose down and unlash or tie his shoes. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. When we could not reach salvation, salvation reached down to us. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached in the Gentiles, believed on in this world, and received up into glory. Godliness was a mystery. God-likeness. How do I live right? How, do I, how, how can I be holy? How can I be like God? It was a mystery. So the message that he sang as we stand was this in 1 Timothy 3.16. It was a mystery in the Old Testament, but now it's revealed. And here it is. He did it for you. He came down, Romans 8 says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
enforce sin, condemn sin in the flesh. That we can have the righteousness, not which is of the law, but the righteousness that far surpassed that. And it was the righteousness of God in Christ. The mystery is here, my friend, and it is God-likeness. How do we become like him? You experience the power and life-changing message of the gospel. It's more than just a belief, but it is a powerful experience that you can have today. Let's lift our hands right now, and let's thank God for that. He's worthy to be praised. Come on, let your voices out for a moment right now.